This is Cloud City. Cloud City with Martin Bove. Hey, this is Martin Beauvais, this is Cloud City, and we are back. Today we have Andreas Kreten in the show. Andreas is CEO and co-founder of Made With Love, and also keynote speaker, CTO, and involved in several companies. Andreas, welcome in the show. Thanks for having me. Hi. Andreas, can you tell me more about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a software engineer uh, with management skills. That's always <laughs> how, I, uh, how I get introduced by other people. So that's uh, what I started adopting myself as well. Um, so I started programming at a very early uh, age and uh, rolled into the Amsterdam startup ecosystem in the 2007, more or less, and uh, got to know a lot of people there. Um, yeah, and, and got to learn the trade there as well, dealing with startups and scales. And then uh, I founded the company in 2008 um, to basically bridge the gap between technical teams and non-technical management teams, because we see that there is often a, a gap that if there is no no one technical in the founding team of a company that uh, they struggle a lot. And so with the company, we try to cover that gap. Obviously, our main thing is still software development or, or, or engineering, uh, but we do a lot of uh, CTO um, at interim assignments, for example, or engineering analytics uh, um, assignments, where we basically help companies to grow and uh, their engineering team. Okay. Or in some cases, to build a product from the ground up um, in a stable and qualitative way. Okay, cool. Now, maybe before you dive in deeper into the world of uh, legacy software startups, uh, um, can you first tell me more about where the, did the name Made with Love come from? Because I really love the name. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Me too, me too. Um, um, so I always say that, um, that a lot of people actually, it's pretty funny. A lot of people ask us why we don't build our own products. Um, because that's obviously, as a service company, the the wallet that you yeah you transform from a service company to a product company and I always say them that we're not creative people and it's actually the same with the, <laughs> with the name of the company so there, there was another name <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> it was a abbreviation and it was uh, of something longer and it was EMG so we were called EMG and um, basically uh, we put under our the things that we make we put under it EMG, uh, made with love by EMG like you see a lot of people doing these days. And um, so we asked the designer to make us a new logo. And he said, why don't you just drop the buy EMG and, and, and adopt, uh, yeah, uh, Major Love as the, as the logo and, uh, or, or as a brand. And so, so we did. Um, and that designer actually now today is the, uh, 
he is associated with uh, Andreessen Horowitz, like the, the big VC firm. And I think he's now the uh, head of design at uh, Grammarly. And he has been head of design at Lyft as well. So okay, <laughs> just to that's... give you an idea, like, uh, he's the one who made our logo for, for free and who came up with the name, actually. Yeah. Okay, that's really a cool story and really also <laughs> a next level guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So you're, it's not the only company that you're involved in? Um, because when no, you check um, your LinkedIn, you have a, a list of uh, companies and exp broad experience. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so there, there's a couple of different things, obviously. There's Midget Love, which is my main focus. Um, I've invested in a couple of smaller teams, like very early stage. Um, and um, Here we also started a, a sister company of Major Love. With Major Love, we really focus on the technical side of things, and with our sister company, we're focusing on the basically the user experience side of things. So we call it an agency for uh, durable design. So we do user research um, and, and UX design um, for for startups and scales. The same focus group as we have as Major Love. Um, and then I'm, if you go on my LinkedIn, you'll see that I'm involved in as a CTO in a lot of companies, and that's mainly through Metric Love. So these are the CTO, interim CTO assignments that we that we do. Um, so uh, yeah, we really think that's very serious, and we we adopt. Uh, I mean, we, we update our LinkedIn pages that we are part of the company, and we uh, we even have like uh, email addresses of the companies we work with and stuff like that. So we really immerse ourselves into those companies who are one of one of them. Okay. Now. Um We used the term CTO uh, already a few yeah. times. Uh, can you maybe explain what is a CTO and what is the difference with a CIO, for example? Oh, um, it's a very good question. I think uh, CTO is a, is, a, is a very technical person. Um, I mean, there is different stages of a CTO, by the way. Uh, same as with a CEO, you cannot have a CEO. I mean, some CEOs can do that really from founder or growing to to a massive company um, but in the CTO situation is more or less the same is that you have an early stage CTO you have like a series A CTO and then you have like a growth CTO and for me um, the early stage CTO is more of a hacker uh, who can really quickly prototype things um, get something uh, together to show to the potential customers uh, make that first version in a, in a very quick way I don't say quick and dirty in a quick way. Um, and then the, the next level CTO is is the um, is like the Series A. So as soon as they raise money, you need to start organizing yourselves as a team. You you need to be get you need to get more serious about quality, for example, uh, stuff like that. So that, that that Series A CTO is more of a yeah, it's, it's still a, a technical person, but more of a manager as well. And then the the, the, the Series B CTO or anything above that is really I'm more a manager who is in charge of growing the team who will probably also have some people underneath him like a VP of engineering or an engineering manager that will help him with that so the, how I see a CIO and, and I um, probably I mean we haven't counted startups we have been working for the startup recently that has a CIO instead of a CTO I don't know where why they decided to do that in startups it's most common to have a CTO uh, I see in a lot of um, corporates it's most more common to have a CIO because that's more of a I think it comes more from a strategic managerial uh, way of thinking where you apply certain techniques to do like digital innovation while the CTO is really like almost a software engineer who, who uh, climbed up the ladder um, while the CIO I think is often is, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah indeed Yeah. Well, the CIO, I think, most is more of a manager who understands technical as well, uh, digital as well. 
Yeah, digital and, and the CIO, uh, I guess, also understands a lot of infrastructure uh, strategies around networking uh, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's stuff that in a, in a startup, I mean, one of the first things we do in companies um, is when the CTO is still in charge of everything that has to do with computers and, and networking in the office and stuff like that, that's the first thing we try to either outsource or to to push it to the office management department. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think in the startup, that's something that a CTO should not be involved with. Yeah, okay. So, um, you, yeah, you have a huge experience in, in the startup world. Um, And you already explained a little bit also about the CEO, CTO in different stages. I think even that is applicable to all C-level functions. Uh, of course, yeah. Uh, we, we, wrote a, we wrote an article about that uh, based on an article of Harvard Business Review. It's on our, it's on our blog, so for sure it's, as, it's like that with every position in a, in a C-level. Yeah, and it, it's even um, that way in corporates, eh? because in, in certain stages of a corporate, for example... You can have um, periods uh, where you, for example, a black swan event like Corona and everything goes down. Um, and then certainly at a certain moment, you need a different kind of managing director or CEO that knows how to do a turnaround. And then yeah. when that's finished, yeah, then you need another CEO. So yeah, at, at different stages, you really need different people. Um, mm -hmm. So... Um, Going to the startups, eh? because uh, I think, yeah, it's made f uh, meet with made with love. It's it's really difficult to say it like that. Um, what what do you guys all do for uh, startups, for example? Um, in short, we supply all the services that basically fall under the responsibility of a CTO. So we can be the CTO. Um, And, and we can do everything he's responsible for. So that means, in, in practical, that means we have a bunch of software engineers. So we, we in the companies we um, we work with, we really want to go down into the trenches and program. So you cannot come to us for just consulting. Um, I don't like that. I don't know if you know the term Siegel, Siegel consultant. Have you heard about that? No. no. no? So uh, a Siegel consultant is, is someone, uh, if you compare it with a Siegel, the Siegel flies and sits on a pole, starts shouting and making mm -hmm. a lot of noise, starts shitting as well. And and then when he leaves, the only thing that he leaves behind is a pile of shit. <laughs> and that's uh, that's what, what you can say about classical consultants who come with fancy PowerPoint presentations to explain uh, in theory what should be done, but don't go down the trenches to implement it. So we really come from the trenches. Um, so we are software engineers. We have been in startups, scaled before. And we actually come and implement the things that we that we believe in. So um, we do that with our software engineering. So our engineers they really work with the with the engineers in the company to basically train them on the job to show them how it's done. And this is about like test automation. This is about like how do you collaborate uh, as an engineering team. Um, I mean these kind of things while they're also being productive and, and delivering code, obviously. Um, Then on, on what we call engineering management level is um, everything has to do with the soft side of, of an engineering team. Um, we see that a lot of HR departments have a hard time understanding how you have to deal with developers. Since we're developers ourselves, we really know <laughs> how you have to deal with developers. We have a very uh, good retention rate in our own company and we try to educate our customers on, um, on how they can do the same. And we're actually even writing a book about that because I think we have uh, we have something there. Um, 
And um, and then, of course, on the on the CTO level, where we give them strategic uh, advice on and 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 yeah, we basically work as a as a, the, the technical um, manager of the of the company. Um, and there is a lot of flavors between that. Um, in in a company, for example, that we're going to start working with soon, they have their existing CTO. We will be coaching that CTO. That's, a, that's another example. So we will get a title, probably like VP of engineering, something like that, so that we don't step on their toes. Um, but we also have situations where um, you have to know that most of the jobs we get, uh, we get them from investors. So we, we are pretty close with, with big investors in, 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 in Europe. And basically they call us and they say, okay, we have a company here. Uh, for example, uh, we have a company and the board decided that we want to uh, put the CTO aside. So we want to replace the CTO. Um, and then they call us and, and they say, okay, can you prepare everything for that? So can you make sure that there's a proper handover? So then we take over the CTO at interim for a while. And then we help them also with finding a new CTO so that we're sure that uh, first of all, they, they get a new CTO, but also that the new CTO has a good start uh, because we prepared everything for that person to join. Okay, uh, there's this typical side kind of things that we do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, that's really uh, interesting. And on on the capital side, I want to come back to that uh, later on. Um, so, I want to paraphrase first. Uh, I think first. So, if I have an idea as a startup, uh, I don't have a technical founder. I can also come to you. You will help me design yeah. and productize my idea, find a CTO, build a team. Uh, but even if I have already a CTO, you can help me build, build a team. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So so we have two types of projects, what we call the brownfield projects. These are most of the time scale-ups uh, or corporate ventures that already have a team and exist, but that have like technical problems. And then there is the greenfield, which is basically a founding team. Sometimes they have a CTO, but more often they don't. They that say, okay, we want to have, we want to build the product fast, and we want to be uh, to get it right uh, from the first um, time. Um, and basically, they come to us. We build the first version of our product. While we're doing that, we also encourage them to import their own engineering team. So we help them if they want. We can help them with uh, finding those people. But when those people join the company, we will basically immerse them in our team. So make kind of a hybrid team of their people and our people. And we train them with what we built, so at one point in time we can start phasing out, uh, and that the company can be on its own. That's I always say the 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 the, the faster we're gone, the better job we we did. Um, so that's our approach. It's totally contradictory to a classical agency that wants to stick with a customer for as long as possible. Uh, but the reason we work like that is because we get bored pretty quickly. Um, and <laughs> if you look it up, um, if you look it up in the US, I think in a the retention rate for a software engineer is, is, is about 18 months. So um, if we wouldn't cycle the projects like that, our engineers would work from our company as well, and we want to avoid that. So basically, we say to customers, it's 12 to 18 months that we are on board, uh, and then we try to hand it over uh, to an internal team. Okay. Depends, of course, on how fast they, they are. But you also really do help develop uh, certain applications or features. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we, we have built a, a number of uh, yeah, scale-ups now in Belgium that we basically have been there. I call it the startup ghostwriter, basically where we, we have been their team. With one startup, they didn't have a team until the rest of their Series A rounds. So we, there were two founders and we were their team. Um, so um, yeah. that shows that's even possible. I started to do a programming course myself. Um, 
I think it's really a cool feeling when you can develop something and you, you see it in action. That feeling, it, it's Absolutely. quite unique. Does that ever go away? No. No, I mean, um, if that goes away, then then you're probably burning out. So um, that's also what you see with programmers. So they have their kind of day job, but they also do these kind of small things on the side because they want to enjoy themselves and try out new technology. So if you are passionate about it, it doesn't go away. The people that are kind of forced into programming, as in that they, they had to pick an education and they're not very um, much into it, those are also not the best programmers, to be honest. Um, they don't have that probably. Um And it, it's cool that you do that because I think um, as a CTO or a CIO, I think you you should be able to understand what it is to, to code. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever will be a really great programmer, uh, but I really want to learn and understand the language and, and the struggles also um, that developers yeah. have or, or technical people. Um, yeah, quite interesting. Uh, I, I must be honest. At some uh, at some points, I have never felt more stupid. But okay, <laughs> but it's really learning a new yeah. language. Yeah, that doesn't, doesn't go away. That doesn't go away. That doesn't go away. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you're looking for something and it's a missing comma. You mean you lost two hours on it? Yeah. 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 Okay. It humbles you, to be honest. Uh, it humbles you. So. Um, If I compare what you are doing and what some other companies uh, are doing, um, for example, or outsourcing to the Middle East, uh, to the Eastern Europe side or India, uh, what are your ideas on that side? Yeah, I have a very, very good. Um, I, I don't know if you know the company Smith Salvage. Have you heard about them? No, no, no. You've maybe read in the news in the law. I mean, Perhaps, and so I, the, the, I forgot the name. The, yeah. the, 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 the ever given rights, the boat that was yeah. stuck in the Suez Canal. I think it's a, a very nice comparison. So um, I've been a big fan of Smith Salvage for years. I explained them who they are. And basically that boat was stuck. They were pulling that boat with 10 Turks, right? They couldn't get it out. Then they called Smith Salvage, which is a Dutch company specialized in uh, in these kind of operations, and that's us. And so we we compare. I compare myself to to them, and they called them. They sent them people to to um, to the site. And so from the Netherlands, they they put them on a plane, and and they also called two Turks. Um, and basically, the two Turks arrived. the The first Turk arrived on Sunday evening. Um, I think three hours after the, that first Turk of them arrived. The boat was already shifted uh, once, and then when the second tug arrived, arrived on, on uh, Monday morning, I think uh, two, three hours later the boat was free. <laughs> and I think that you can compare that with with, with outsourcing or, or nearshoring or working with a suboptimal team. I don't really care where a team is. Uh, I only care about the quality of the team. We also have people um, around the world. We are a remote company, so but they work with the best people. And I think that's very important. So I don't care if it's offshore, uh, offshoring, nearshoring, whatever. As long as you're with the best people the, uh, to do the job, you'll get the best uh, results in the short amount of time. Um, what I see a lot is that founders, for example, if you are non-technical founders, what they'll do is they'll go to either these kind of outsourcing companies and they trust them. Um, but yeah, those outsourcing companies are most of the time, first of all, don't have the best programmers because they, The best programmers most of the time are freelancers, even in those countries. Um, the communication is, is often uh, problematic. And um, also the, the quality of the code that they're writing 
is is not of a high level. So they're basically they get their first version done, <clears throat> and then they realize if they get it done already, they realize shit. Um, the quality is not good enough for it to scale. We have to start over from scratch. So basically, they, they, they lost a lot of money. Um, another approach that we see is that those that those non-technical founders they they try to gather a bunch of freelancers around them, um, and um, that can help them. But the problem with that is, I mean, there's a couple of problems. If you're working with one person, um, we've had that before. Those kind of situations that one person can run away from one day to the other. Um, we have been in that situation where we help them out and to to, to fix that. Um, but um, another company that we're dealing with right now, basically, they have a, a freelance CTO with then two developers in Belgium, I think two developers in Belarus or something. And um, it works pretty well, but they also, they, they're wasting a lot of money on it. And though for those people, they have absolutely no interest in insourcing the engineering team, right? Because they then they're losing their job. So they mm-hmm. are not supporting... Um, the non-technical founders with insourcing the development, and as a non-technical founder, you have no clue. You don't. You cannot. You, you can. You can trust them, or you can trust them. It's how you want it, but you have no idea how to start on. Okay, how do I hire a first developer? How do I screen that person? How do I make sure it's the right person for the job? How do I get him to work on the code base? Then how do I get on GitHub? Stuff like that. And that's basically the questions that we are helping them with. Then is is okay. We come in and we say, okay, first we will probably do an audit. We we check okay what's what's there, and then we will start working with the with the team they have on hand to basically get the knowledge on our side, and then slowly transition to to their own internal team. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's always a human problem. Eh? I think you really need yep. a team, yep. and that makes a difference. Um, uh, that's also really important, I guess, for uh, investors, eh? the team that you build around that. Um, and that's also what you what you guys are doing, actually, for, for investors, is checking what is the team, what are the competencies, um, how, what are you doing for them, for the investors? So we work... <clears throat> Yeah, we work for for all major VCs in Belgium, the Netherlands, France, and the UK and Germany. And and what we do, I mean, and basically we rolled into it. So we we were doing work for scale-ups, and it was actually I think Fortino Capital, the, the, one of the bigger investors in Belgium, who called us and said like, hey, I remember getting the call from Tico. He said, okay, we have this company. We're not 100 sure if they're doing the right thing. Can you please, because they already invested in them, to, uh, can you please do an audit to figure out, like, are they working correctly? And that was the first audit we did, I think, in probably 2017, something like that. And um, as of that day, somehow, I think they were happy with the results and they started spreading the word uh, in the investor world. Um, and, and since that day, we're getting requests for doing real to do when there is a an investment done most of the time is if the investment is big enough you'll have someone come in to assess the technical side of things and we are one of the i guess in belgium the biggest party that does that uh, we do one out of the week uh, just to give you a, an idea okay. and um and basically the cool thing about that is because um we, we send our reports to the investor to the main investor most of the time but there's also a lot of co-investors um mostly and they also get to see that report and then they see, okay, that's an interesting report, interesting approach on, on, on the diligence. And then they contact us as well. So it, it's like spreads like a fire. Um, and that's that's pretty cool uh, for us because it's free marketing by doing a good job. Um, and um, I like that. We, we also working out for investors, for example, in New York and, and stuff like that. So um, without doing any effort uh, on it. And 
I think what investors like about what we do is <clears throat> we are, of course, technical people. Um, and as when you see most of the time technical due diligence reports, uh, it's very technical. And it's, uh, okay, uh, I remember reading one from a, from a big scale up in Belgium and one of the remarks of the auditor was, um, you can walk into the office uh, without batching. Um, and then you can also walk into the network cabinet and pull out plugs. And I was like, that was one of the remarks. So like this kind of detail. Um, and investors don't care about that. They want to know, is this team able to scale? Uh, do we have the right people? Which people do we need to replace? Um, what's the code quality? Will it scale? Stuff like that. So that's the kind of things that we're assessing. If you put 10 more people to this team, um, will, they know how, will they know how to organize that? So we're really more on the soft side of, uh, uh, of things than on the hard technical side of things. Obviously, we check, um, but we don't report too much on it. Yeah, it's mainly the focus on, on the people, actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think also, for sure, for venture capital uh, firms, yeah, they are really looking for the success formula, and that's mostly people, actually. Yeah? Um, of course, yeah. Uh, even the business plan, uh, I saw this in a course, the business plan is even not the most important part. It's it's, uh, yeah. it's really the people. Uh, yeah. So... Um, I think you have a really good view on, on the startup scene, uh, on, the, on the technical side, the human side, and also on the money mm -hmm. side. Um, so what, what is a magical formula for the startup, for a SaaS startup? Andreas, tell me. <laughs> It's, uh, I'm going to probably piss off a lot of people, but bootstrap it. Bootstrap that's the best it, thing yeah. you can do. Yeah. So as a founder, that's the best thing you can do. Um, But of course, the, I have this theory that <clears throat> in the in the 90s, everyone was wanted to be Kurt Cobain and they bought a guitar, right? Um, in the nillies, everyone wanted to be DJ Gesto and they bought a mixing mixing gear. Huh? And the um, <clears throat> in the 10s, everyone wanted to be a startup founder, um, and that's still something that that there is today. So everyone wanted to be Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Actually, I mean to continue the story, but it's not—it's not—it's materializing already, but it's not there yet. In the in the twenties, everyone wants to be an investor. Um, that's the new—that's the new thing. <laughs> uh, just so you know, just a heads up on that. But um, why I'm saying that is because <clears throat> um, a lot of people, when they start a startup, they think, for example, raising money is uh, is a success. Mm. Okay, it's a validation of your business idea, but that doesn't mean that you're successful. Um, so, and I think that's something that, that we do totally wrong is, I mean, we, of course, we have to be happy for the people that raise money because it will allow them to grow. Um, but yeah, of course, you need to make revenue and you need to, you need to be uh, profitable. So I, I always look at companies like OnePassword, I don't know if you know them, mm -hmm. um, yep. or, um, or Basecamp. So what they did is, I mean, OnePassword is a very, very good example. So they bootstrapped everything maybe for 10, 15 years, I think. Um, so they have been profitable from day one. They, they, they scaled up the company very nicely. They didn't give away any shares. And then 15 years later, they raised, oh, I don't remember, I think it's 150 million, just in one in one Series A check. First Series, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and there is a podcast episode of David Heimer Hansen with the founder of, of, uh, of OnePassword where they have a discussion about the transaction. And basically, the founder of OnePassword 
And he said, like, for us, this is like a very good exit because we didn't give away. Basically, they raised the capital, but most of that capital was basically the founders being bought out. So it was not a capital increase. It was really cash money for the founders. So basically, he said, like, we as founders were taking some risk off the table. So we still have majority shares. We have a very big firm that came in. We basically have now a, a big check on the bank. And now we can take more, even more risk. Um, with, with, with one password. And I think that's that's pretty cool. If you can bootstrap until certain states where you can say, okay, as a company, we're profitable, we're doing good. And the only reason we need to raise money is to to be able to, to grow and to take more risk. Um, obviously, that's not possible um, in most situations because there is already a market, you need to grow very fast. Um, so I think that, that what you need to do at, at that stage is to... First of all, um, start with already enough capital because that's a mistake I see a lot that companies try to... Um, if you cannot build it yourself, right, you need to have enough capital to get started. Otherwise, you'll be screwed anyway. Um, so... What is enough capital? I think you need, yeah, 300 to, to 500,000 euros yeah. Yeah, to get started. If you cannot put that on the table, don't start on it because you you will be um, basically overridden by by other people who have that capital who will be able to do better. Um, and then you'll get at a certain stage, hopefully, that you have some kind of product that is generating some revenue, and from there, and then is the, is the point to raise money to accelerate growth. And then you have to pick the right VC with the right network um, to uh, to help you out. There is. Every day I get messages of new funds being created. So there is plenty of money. The reason for that is because of the low interest rates. Um, people are, are trying to find better returns on investments than, than, than putting money in a bank account. So that's why VC is, is so big right now. Um, but it also makes there is a, there is so many VCs to pick from. It's really VCs fighting for, for the good startups than the other way around these days. Um, and that makes, of course, that you need to pick the right one, um, and uh, one that you uh, that you feel comfortable with, that you think has the right network to support you, and, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's true. Uh, VC is not only about the money; it's also about the, what they can bring to the table. The, the network, money is secondary, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. What they can bring to the table, or how they can help you scale and with skills and, yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, people yeah. often confuse that uh, or mix that up. Yeah, you can, I mean, there, there is always, uh, if you, I mean, you can always do like co-investments. So basically you can find a VC with the money and bring in another investor, which has the knowledge. It's also a possibility. Um, but I really believe that you need to have that, what we call smart investor, better than just a, a bag of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, even also, um, it's correct what you say. And even also, if you want to do multiple capital rounds, yeah, Every investor that you t- take on board, I, it needs to be the right one. You need to think long term also, eh? because you can get stuck if you have the wrong investing p- uh, investors on board. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, what I see most of the time is in a, in a Series A. It's most of the time a local investor that that does that. Um, that helps you scale in your home country basically and, and and get the marketing right and the sales right. And then for the Series B, you want to get an international investor that can help you scale uh, in, uh, internationally. Um, and, and for example, if you look at Showpad, that's exactly what they did. Um, I don't know who was the first investor in Showpad, but um, I know that for the Series B, Hummingbirds. they went to... Um, uh, Hummingbirds. Yeah, Hummingbirds. Hummingbirds was one of yeah, the first which ones. Is a, 
which is a Belgian investor, obviously. And then if you, uh, they went to Down Capital in, in London for their sale, which is like uh, one of the major investors in London. Um, yeah, that, that makes total sense. And they helped them then to bring them in their service uh, C, I think, they raised uh, in the US. Yeah. yeah. So maybe a last question on the on the, on the startup scene. Um, are there any programming languages better than others uh, to start a startup? Because you have so many languages. It's again it's a, it's a really, controversial it's question. Really, yeah, I know, I know. But I, I'm I'm learning Ruby, Ruby on Rails, JavaScript. But you have yeah. so many other languages. So, uh, it, it's difficult to say what is the right one now. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try to explain how to pick the right one. Um, so first of all, there is no wrong language. All, I mean, as long as you can program in it and um, you're comfortable with it, the most important thing is that your team is comfortable with it. So if you have a very good team, different language, don't make them to switch language. That's not, that's not it. If you're starting from scratch and you don't have a team yet, you need to consider what's important to you. Um, so it depends on what you're building. If you're doing data science, the language to go to is Python, right? That's, there is no question. But Python is probably not the language to build web applications. So if you want to build a web application with some data science behind it, you're going to go with Python and something else. Of course, you can build a web application in Python, and that's no problem. But, um, and the same with Ruby on Rails, actually, um, finding developers, that's my metric um, on how to decide which language to use. And basically, I always say that um, try to find the most economic language to, to use. That means which developers are the cheapest, where you have a lot of developers knowing the language, um, that's for me the most important factor. The more developers there are available, the more likely you'll find a good one to join your team. If there is already a very scarce market, for example, if you go with Ruby on Rails in Belgium, if you want to find a good Ruby on Rails developer in Belgium, that is not just finish the bootcamp, sorry for that, but yeah. <laughs> if you want to get someone with five or 10 years of experience, there is maybe, I would say 50 people um, in Belgium that, that have that. So as a startup, you're doing Ruby on Rails. I think half of them are already at, at, uh, at uh, uh, Silverfin, right? They do Ruby on Rails. The other half of it is at, uh, at PlayPass. They also do Ruby on Rails. And probably there is a couple of other big... So basically, the only thing you can do is try to steal them from, from there. But, mm -hmm. And they know that as well, so they, they pay their people very well. Um, so Ruby on Rails, Python, those are these kind of niche languages. They're very nice to get started in. Um, but in the job market, they are, uh, if you are a good Ruby developer, you can make a lot of money, right? But um, it's, yeah, still, it's for me, it's not the right language because also the communities are are not, then there is, um, I'm not talking about the Microsoft stack. I don't know anything about that. Um, so we are actually working with a company that is doing .NET right now. Um, I guess that's fine. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything about it. Um, then there's Java, right? Which is mostly used in the corporate world. Um, but that also means that because it's used in the corporate world, the price of the developers is higher um, than, than you're used to. Java is used a lot in FinTech startups because of the relationship with the corporate world, I guess, um, because the as engineers most of the time come from banks. Um, so Java, right? Um, but, and then there's two other technologies. Um, there is PHP and JavaScript. PHP has been around for many years um, and has a, gotten a bit of a bad name. Uh, like 10 years ago, everyone was making fun of it. Um, today, actually, it's a very modern programming language, uh, very performance. Um, Slack is built on, Facebook, um, um, 
on PHP. Facebook is built on PHP, so it, it's all the jokes that are made of it are not valid anymore. Um, and the cool thing about it is it has a very, very strong ecosystem with very standards. So if you walk into a PHP project, you'll get your way around pretty soon. So we know, okay, it's using Composers, Composers Package Manager. Uh, there are certain techniques that we use. We have like standards for doing certain things, like just to pick an example, like how you do caching. Uh, um, that's a standard that we have in our in our in our community, and basically every framework is implementing it in the same way. So if you write a plugin to do caching, it will in all the different frameworks. And then there is JavaScript, and JavaScript is cool because it works both on the backend with Node and in the front in your browser. So by by learning one language, you'll be able to do the full stack. But the very big problem with JavaScript for me is um, is the fact that there is no standards. So every JavaScript project that you encounter is totally different. Um, and, and that makes it very hard for new developers to join a company. So our preference is to go with PHP in the backend and JavaScript slash React in the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, either it's PHP or JavaScript that is really, really matter. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Answer uh, the question, yes. Yeah, it's, it's really great answer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so maybe a question on, on legacy software. Uh, I think you guys are also working on that part. Uh, it's, yep. I think it's a serious problem for a lot of companies also. Um, what are you doing on that side? Um, and maybe yeah. legacy software, maybe we should frame that first. Um, I think legacy software for me, that's really software with an outdated architecture Um I it's it's software that has aged. That's uh, I, I think yeah, I would I like to say it like that, but maybe you have another definition. Yeah, there is two definitions. There is um there is there is legacy, um, which for me I call it uncontrolled technical depth. Um, but then I have to explain what technical depth is. Technical depth <laughs> is basically parts of the source code where you um, where you know there is problems with, but you're not touching it. Right, and we call it technical debt because you need to pay it off at one point in time. So you basically take a loan, right? That's why it's called technical debt. You know that you have to fix it, but one point in time you have to pay it back. And if you don't do that by developing the paying back, we pay it back by downtime at one point in time. So, um, and then the legacy for me is uncontrolled. So you have technical debt that you say, okay, we know it's there, it's controlled. That means we know that it's there, and we have tests. And if there's a problem with it, we will we will be aware of it. And then there's uncontrolled technical debt, and that's basically um, what happens a lot. Is for example, someone who left the company has written that piece of software, and we don't know how it works. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so you have to know that 80% of the work that we do is in legacy uh, uh, software, um, and and we really like doing that as well. And we are, and that's why I compare myself with this Mitch Salvage company. And so they they come in and, and fit these kind of disasters like shipwrecks. Uh, they remove them from the ocean. They they get the the Kursk, you know, the submarine mm-hmm, that sank. Mm-hmm. They they cut them into pieces, and they that, that's all that company. They they solve all these big things, um, and. Um, and so with legacy, we do the same. So we come in and we try to, to get an approach and we have some standard techniques that we use um, to basically, um, first of all, control the technical depths um, or the legacy and, 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 and just make the legacy into control technical depths. And then we try to um, basically transform it into something modern. Um, I think what's very important and, and that's what a lot of developers do wrong is um, 
Most of the developers, when they, they encounter a legacy code base, they will say we have to start over from scratch, um, which is an approach that is not necessary in 90% of the cases. So most of the time, we can just take what's, what is there and, and, and basically bend it over to something new. And why we do that is because if you're going to start over from scratch, you're going to lose a lot of business value. And the reason for that is it's technical depth. It's not documented, so you don't know what it's doing. You can assume what it's doing. Right? And when you start from scratch, you're going to work on based on that assumptions. You're going to forget about so many things that are already implemented in that code base. So what we do is we try to take the existing code base and, and bend it over in such a way that, um, that it becomes controllable and that we can modernize it um, and, and so that we can expand on it. That's basically what we try to, to do. Uh, and we have various techniques for, for that. And indeed, we, it's something that, I, like I said, it's 80% of the work that we do is, is dealing with those kind of uh, situations. Yeah. But you're not saying that you, you are always rewriting everything of a, a certain legacy no. software application? We almost never rewrite it. Um, it's, um, I, I really think that it's most of the times not necessary to do that. Um, and um, yeah. Unless, of course, it's written in a very outdated technology. But for example, we, had pro- we have had projects that are were, like, we're currently at PHP uh, 8, if I'm not mistaken. We had projects that were at PHP 4, which is was like, when we started working on that project, it was, I think, already discontinued for like three or four years, right? Um, and, and you think like, okay, this is, the gap is way too big. Um, we are just going to throw it away and start over again. But um, this was a startup and a scale-up actually, a high-profile scale-up that was already in business for years. They had uh, a lot of customers that were highly profitable. So there is makes no sense to do because if you're going to start over from scratch, what, you will have a feature stop and a standstill for huh, two years, something like that, to, to build it again. So that makes absolutely no sense. So we try to take what's there and try to put components next to it or on top of it um, that are modern and then replace the, the old stuff with the modern uh, things, step by step. Um, yeah, we call, it, we call it the island technique. So we start on, on little islands, right? And the islands, they grow bigger, bigger, bigger. And then at one point in time, they melt together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, and that's also, I guess, because also on the infrastructure side, a lot of things are changing. So also that island model also works for covering that, I guess, yeah. Yeah, for cloud Absolutely, models yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Thank you. Um, maybe a last question. Um, you guys also have a podcast. Yes, you do. Uh, so can you tell me more about that? Yeah, it's called Tools. Um, and uh, yeah, it was started by, by uh, actually two of our, our people um, just because they wanted to do a podcast. Um, and we have this thing that any initiative you want to take in a company, you can pick it. Um, they get 10% of their time that they can spend on, on whatever they want. So uh, this is a result of that. And um, in the podcast, we try to do two things. Um, I think the focus shifted a bit with the whole corona situation, but our initial idea was to have conversations with people that, uh, European people that went to the US and then came back. That's uh, because a lot of my friends from the early days, they, they so 2007, 2008, you have to remember, uh, that's, I think, yeah, Facebook existed for three or four years. Uh, I remember being together with Alexander uh, from SoundCloud next to him at a conference, stuff like that. Um, for example, I was the first Amazon Web Services customer in, in Europe. Um, 
So I got to tour with, with the CTO of Amazon Werner Vogels. I, I toured with him for, for a month in Europe uh, on, on a, ro- a roadshow for Amazon Web Services. And um, so basically we had the idea, what, what if we interview all those people that went to the US and then came back? And I, I think now with the, with the whole current situation, there's even more going to come back, uh, to be honest. Um, but now, because we, um, we figured that um, we also have a lot of interesting stories from within our team, uh, situations that happen on projects or discussions that we have. And so we started doing this, these sessions, what we call in between, in between us sessions, where we basically have a discussion with our team. Um, I mean, with our team, with a couple of people of our team. So I think we did a uh, recently, uh, we did one about different JavaScript uh, frameworks. Um, we have done one about legacy uh, software and how to deal with it. Um, we've done one about um, organizing remote retreats, uh, so company retreats uh, remotely, um, stuff like that. So um, we don't really have like a very strong focus, uh, except that basically we want to work with, we want to discuss a bit technical, but also the human side of, of things like we do at Native Draft, basically. Yeah. Okay. But interesting topics, a little bit fun. I think making podcasts yeah. is really fun also. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not involved at all, so I've, I've been in the first episode, um, that was still, now we don't do it physically anymore, so we, we do all the recordings uh, remotely, um, and it works pretty nicely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, Andreas, uh, we're coming to the end. Um, are there some takeaways that you want to give around software or startups, uh, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I... When people ask me advice um, when they want to start something and they, they don't have a technical co-founder, um, they, they ask me what to do. And I always tell them, um, don't hire a technical co-founder or don't try to find a technical co-founder. And the reason for that is because if you don't have them, that person from the start, um, you're going to end up in some kind of blind date situation or what's it called? Uh, yeah, they have this program in Belgium where they, they marry people on the television uh, oh, which yeah. haven't seen each Blink other, right? Trouts, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so um, starting a company is like marriage. That's what my notary said when I started the company. It's like marriage, and you have to you have to know that it's it's for a long time. And so you're not going to get married to someone you don't know. And from a technical perspective, that's even more true because as a non-technical founder, you're bringing on board a technical co-founder which you actually don't know, but you cannot assess either if he's good or not. Um, and um, if you bring that person on board as a co-founder, you're going to get be stuck with him. So if if fails or fix things up, you cannot easily get rid of it. So I think it's way better to find a good freelancer or a good first employee where you can bring on board that, that does that initial uh, setup um, to make the proof of concept, to make the, the first version. And, and then maybe when it's time to branch out, to, to get bigger, hire a CTO, put on the payroll that, that can grow the company. Um, and I see a lot of companies anxiously looking for a technical co-founder. I can tell you, there is no, I mean, as developers, first of all, we're risk averse. So we're not going to, to join a company. I mean, yes, when I started, <clears throat> I mean, I, I joined my first startup, I think in 2006, right? Then indeed, you could just walk in the street, find a developer and say, hey, I'm doing a startup. Do you want to join me in doing that? And we're like, yeah, sure. Um, because there was so few startups and it was very cool, all right? Um, but today, um, developers have so many opportunities, they're never going to take that risk um, unless there's something sketchy with them. Um, so yeah, don't try to find that technical co-founder. It, it makes absolutely no sense unless you already know the, pro- the person or he's absolutely passionate about what you're doing mm. and he's already in the same industry. Okay, that's really great advice. 
Thank you, Andreas, <laughs> for coming to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, to all the listeners, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, the next coming weeks, we will discover more about the world of startups. Thank you. Bye. Deze aflevering is mogelijk gemaakt dankzij Microsoft en Aspects. Aspects, de partner met meer dan 15 jaar ervaring in application hosting voor al uw cloud oplossingen. Onze missie? Een zorgeloze IT-infrastructuur opzetten op maat van jouw organisatie. Met gegarandeerde maximale uptime.